Yeah, to return it to me personally, I, 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 again, this is a journey, journey, and, and so over time, what I kind of learned at Wired, what I learned at Wired was one of the secret sauces of Wired was its optimism. Even in the early 90s, there was still a lot of pessimism, a lot of doubt and skepticism about this internet thing. I mean, it seems unbelievable now, but there were just relentless, relentless talk about how this internet thing was a fad. It was about teenage boys. It was never going to be mainstream. I, mean, I had the New York Times technological columnist say, I will, no one will ever buy a car on the internet. This episode of the Stretch 4 podcast is brought to you by Deal. Ready to take the next step in your hiring journey? You found the global talent you need, but need to onboard them? Deal can help. Their expert team can guide you to hiring quickly, compliantly in over 150 countries at your fingertips with compliant contracts, top local legal experts, global payroll solutions, and more. And that's just the beginning. It's time you got your hands on their free international compliance handbook, which will be linked to in the show notes to find out more deal to help you hire globally and increase your bandwidth of where you can hire talented engineering product, as well as other industry leaders in your teams. Thanks a lot to deal for supporting independent media with the stretch for podcast. The Stretch 4 Podcast is brought to you by Modern Tax. Tax season has come and gone, but the data from tax filings can be leveraged to help financial institutions make better financial decisions about their individuals and their business customers. It all starts and ends with accessing clean and reliable data. Modern Tax is a business-to-business -business intelligence platform built on the top of tax information. Through this tax information, we're able to give you insights into revenue, income, good standing, key officer and other business information that you need on your business customers, as well as individuals. Modern Tax offers two products to help businesses verify both businesses and consumers for online financial services by leveraging public and private tax records. With coverage across 7 million U.S.-based businesses and millions of consumers, Modern Tax helps companies stay compliant and utilizes this alternative data set to save time, money, and increase performance. Modern Tax offers an insights platform that delivers data to you with an minutes and not days or hours as it would take to get this information through traditional vendors, which have taken up to 550 days to return a report. Check out moderntax.io to find out more about the company and get a discount using Stretch4 on your first invoice. Thank you, Modern Tax, and I hope you guys enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the Stretch4 podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Today with me, I have Kevin Kelly, who's the founder, the founding editor of Wired Magazine, which many of you are all familiar with. He's also the author of multiple books, including The Inevitable and Out of Control. He's also the co-founder of the Long Now Foundation. And Kevin is joining us specifically today to discuss you know, his new book, Excellent Advice for Living, and to share his insights on entrepreneurship, innovation, and the future. He's also known for his widely viral concept of a thousand true fans, which has become a cornerstone in the creative economy. We're excited to dive deep into Kevin's ideas and learn from his experiences, and we hope you'll enjoy this thought-provoking conversation. So sit back and relax, and we'll get started. Kevin, we'll start today's conversation off really just around lifestyle. I feel like a lot of the benefits of what I've experienced from your readings and your production of content over the years is just around lifestyle and being able to 
map things to accomplishments like the thousand through true fan concepts, getting to those points mm-hmm. in, in your creative process. You also have some very interesting things though about procreation and building and growing families. And so for our podcast, I would love for you to kind of delve into your opinion on why we should be having more children and how do you balance, how, how do you, how do you have that view as well as balancing it with the demands of parenthood, as well as mm-hmm. being a very productive producer of professional, like creating content, building businesses, doing those things. How do you, how do you marry those two, those two ideas? So thank you. It's a real privilege to be here, Matt. I really appreciate the invitation. And um, yes, it's true that a bit of advice that's not in the book is that folks should have as many kids as they possibly can. I don't think I've met a single person who has had a regret for additional children. Everyone's a blessing and in some ways a joy that's really beyond what you might expect. So that's just a simple thing, but there are there are some, you know, parenting advice that I've picked up over the years. I have three kids. They're kind of young adults now. And that's actually the origin of this book was kind of writing some things down for them that we might have tried to act out, but never really put down into words. And I think they range from, you know, financial advice about how to manage your money to how to be motivated and things like that. Um, and career advice, which is what most young adults are kind of looking for. My career advice is very simple for anybody in their 20s, which is um, if at all possible, try to work on something somewhere that there's no name for what it is that you do, where it might take a little while to kind of explain to your parents what it is. So that is a good indication that you're kind of working in a sweet spot where a breakthrough could happen because that's where breakthroughs happen. And it's also much more likely that you can arrive at doing something that only you can do if you're working where there's no name for what it is. But, you know, when they're young kids, another bit of advice that we gave for when they were elementary school or even toddlers was we tried to, we tried to, to, to mostly motivate by elevating and praise rather than scolding or punishment. But sometimes, you know, there are limits. And so we had our kids, the, the bit of advice is have your kids devise their own punishments because they're going to be stricter than you are. So, you know, we say, okay, here's, here's the rules. And if you, and if, you know, if you break the rules, what should the punishment be? And so they, they're involved. They're co-opted. They're now, they have skin in the game. They, they're actually developing what the punishment should be. And so they're very aware of them and they, you know, they will honor it. And as I said, they're often stricter than we were. So, so another bit of advice for parents is try to invent as many rituals as you possibly can, family rituals. And they don't really matter whether they're significant or not. Even frivolous rituals become rituals once, if you do them more than three times. And these rituals are really, really very important for kids. They just love to, to have things that they can expect and, and rely on. This idea of relying on having having something stable, having something recurring that they can rely on is very anchoring for them as they develop. So the ritual could be something as simple as cooking pancakes every Sunday morning without fail. They just come, that comes to be something that they can settle on that allows them to kind of grow from there, even though it's a completely trivial thing. But 
It could be something you do weekly. It could be something you do monthly. It could be something you could do seasonally, something you do on special days and holidays. Every, every birthday we do X, and that's something that they expect. So that was something that I wished we had done more of when we were growing up. I didn't realize at the time when we had young kids how important that was, and it's become evident to me that more and more important as I've gotten older. That, that really is a great Great advice, Kevin. And, and, and kind of to follow up there, I think it, it kind of merges the other question I have here around this is you've written a lot about the importance of intergenerational knowledge sharing, right? And preserving your cultural heritage of future generations. How, how do you see or how have you seen that work out successfully as it relates to parents and family structure as it relates to just good human behavior or good those people go on to do great things in the world? Like how do, how do you correlate those, those two things, like those rituals those family, the cultural heritage, and then the results of those folks that are brought up in that type of environment? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one of the other things that I've noticed in respect to that was that um, kids who had a very strong notion of their family identity seemed to be doing better, seemed to thrive better. So part of what you want your kid to do to develop not only their own individual character, but also a family, a sense of what the family identity is. And so you want to be able to have your kids say, our family does X and to be proud of it, you know, whatever it is. And part of what I think helps that is talking about the family as a unit, saying our family does this or doesn't do that. This is what our family does. This is what our family is about. And and kind of working on family happiness, the ha- the happiness of the family as a whole, as a unit. And that's, again, another thing that is very anchoring to kids as they develop is having that kind of foundation to rest on as they search to develop their own identity is they have the family identity, which is kind of like, you know, not going to go away is permanent. And no matter what happens, there's there. And so taking time to query and, and, and press and, and think about the family as a unit and what its identity it's like, what is what do we stand for? What are we about? And that's something that could be inherited. Your family tradition. This is what my this is what our family did in the previous generation. This is what we're about. This is what we're gonna be about in the future. That's those kinds of, of perspectives are again very strengthening, very nourishing for a children growing up. That's very that's a very great perspective and something I'm definitely channeling in my own life with a thirteen month old and a and, and that going on at home. So it's very good to hear that and, and knowing that I can set up these rituals now and kind of leave the, leave the legacy for my son moving forward. Um, right. Transitioning a bit from, you know, family and building. And I think that's, that's the core of everything beyond that. But I think as well as it could correlate with the family stuff is you've been a prominent figure now in the tech industry specifically for several decades. How have you adapted your personal brand to continue to, to, to mm-hmm. kind of be, relevant amongst a wide group of people, right? Like you're mentioning, you know, you probably have teenagers who are reading and learning from you as well as, you know, middle age or adults like me, you know, my thirties, but as well as people much older than me, how have you been able to constantly evolve your, um, you know, your personal brand as, as a writer and as a, as a, as a thought leader? Yeah, that, that, that's a really great question. And I would say there was, um, one bit of advice in my book that that I think I keep returning to again because I think it's the core idea, which is that um, of 
I, um, I recommend that, and I found it in my own life to be true, to strive to not be the best, but to be the only in something, to, to, to find some combination of things that only I can do and to basically kind of turn down opportunities that I think could be done by other people, even though I might enjoy it, even though I might be good at it, even though I might get paid for it. And that is, I mean, to, to, to be good at something and to enjoy doing it and getting paid for it is kind of like the holy trinity for most people, right? If I, most people feel if I can arrive at the place where my job is and I something I enjoy, something I'm really good at, and something I get paid for, it's like, okay, yeah, that's it. But there actually is another stage after that, and that is the stage of can anybody else be doing it? And so as, as you talk about kind of like a personal branding, of, a distinction of, of, of kind of making yourself irreplaceable, part of that is the process of kind of moving towards that place where it's only you that can do it or only you that can do it at least in that manner. And so, and so in that way, you're kind of like you're in your own movie rather than being an extra in someone else's movie. And to be in your own movie usually requires to have to be an unoccupied niche. To be a professional basketball player, that's a very limited number of people. It's highly competitive. It's very unlikely that you'd be there. But to, to be there, you're going to have to be better than many people. And that is, that's, that is, you're not the only. I mean, it's, it's like that it's such a highly refined position and definition of success that there's very, very few people that that will fit into. Very, very rare. But what you want to be doing is inventing your own version of success, your own definition of success. And that's part of this process of becoming the only. So you are in, you're having a different metric. You're not using other someone else's ruler to measure your life. You're kind of making your own ruler. So one of the things I would say is, and this is true for companies and startups as well, which is um, invent and define your own success. It has to be more than about how much money you make. It's just not. There's a piece of advice in the book, which I got from Walt Disney, and, and it's I, I, I put it in my own words, which is you don't make money to make stuff. You make stuff in order. You don't make stuff to make money. You make money in order to make stuff. So he was saying we don't make movies to make money. We make money in order so we can make movies. So the 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 reward is more work. The reward for your work should be that you get to keep working. You get to do more of it. And that's another bit of advice is that there's a lot of kind of talk about productivity, a lot of productivity experts and people who are really concerned about being productive. Well, that's often a misguided sense. It's not that you should be looking for the kind looking for ways to make your job go as fast as possible. Rather, you should be looking for the kind of jobs that you don't ever want to end. You want to look for the kinds of work that where you can keep working on it forever, as many hours. The more hours, the better. It's like if you were a painter, you don't want to ask, like, what's the quickest, shortest painting job I can do? No, it's like, I want to keep painting. I want to keep going. I just, I love painting. And I want to see how I can extend the number of hours I spend painting. And so, so that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to look for the kind of work where you want to extend the amount of time you spend on it rather than reduce it. And that is often, um, and this is what I'm saying, this is a high bar to reach for and will take most of us, including myself, most of our lives to try and figure out what that is. But 
This is not a destination. You don't arrive there. This is a, a direction that you are moving towards always. You're always moving in this direction of trying to become more of yourself, the better you. And it requires everybody around you to help. So it's a, it's a, it's a long journey. But even when you're young, you can begin to sit there. And again, I think this is also true for companies and, and institutions and organizations uh, where that it also wants to be the only. It doesn't want to be necessarily better. It doesn't want to be kind of like the better or best cupcake company in the world. It really wants to be something different, something that's, that's unique in a certain sense. And that sense of really being the only is 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 the should be the real goal of most startups and companies going when we we had the privilege at wired when we started wired was that there was nothing like it we had no competitors for at least a decade or more and that's good news and bad news the good news again is we don't have any competition the bad news is that nobody know what to make of it there was no words what what, what is this thing it's not a computer magazine. What kind of ads should be in it? It was really hard to sell. It was very difficult to explain to people what it was about. Now it seems kind of obvious, but it was not obvious at the time. It was weird. It was it was uncategorizable. It was outside the normal buying channels for advertisers. And so there were huge difficulties based on the fact that you are the only, because you don't fit into the existing categories. But if you can make it work, the gains are outsized and the yields are, are, are spectacular. And and with that, I think you brought up a lot there. And Kevin, I wanted to unpack one thing specifically as it relates to you building your brand as a person, figuring out yeah. that thing that you are. How have you designed right. it? And you can frame it in the world of like startups or company building where yeah. you're trying to build this one and only team. How have you thought about it with building collaborative influencers around your work? Sure, sure. Building early days wired. Maybe maybe talk a bit or give us some advice there yeah. from the book on on how you think about that. Yeah, yeah. To return it to me personally, I, 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 again, this is a journey, journey, and, and so over time, what I kind of learned at Wired, what I learned at Wired was one of the secret sauces of Wired was its optimism, even in the early. 90s, there was still a lot of pessimism, a lot of doubt and skepticism about this internet thing. I mean, it seems unbelievable now, but there were just relentless, relentless talk about how this internet thing was a fad. It was about teenage boys. It was never going to be mainstream. I, mean, I had the New York Times technological columnist say, I will, no one will ever buy a car on the internet. You know, people said they're not going to shop for food on the internet. I mean, it was it was just it was just relentlessly negative about the the importance of the the emerging internet at the time, and um, we were stridently optimistic, or we became optimistic in response to that, and 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 that brand of optimism became something that Wired was known for, and I decided to become more optimistic myself, and so. Part of my brand right now is uh, a radical optimism. And that's something that, you know, I have been, that's the journey that I've been on for two decades. Actually, Wired 30 years old this year. So 30 years of kind of working on the optimism part of my own view of the world. I think optimism is something you learn. 
not just a, a, a generic temperament. It, it, it's, a, it's a learned skill, so to speak. And I have deliberately been choosing to be more optimistic um, over time. And so, and so that's sort of, that was the wired branding by the end. We didn't really begin with that in mind, but that was what it became. And then that's sort of been my brand since then is a optimism about the future, which by the way, is not widely shared. I, you know, it's like there's pretty, people are pretty pessimistic about the, the prospects of a world full of AI and genetic engineering and all that. And yet I am, you know, in the minority uh, of really being very optimistic about it. That's that's great. And that that actually transitions us into another set of questions around some of these learnings and, and kind of where we are today with the new book and, and kind of as you're unpacking excellent advice for living. You, you said Which is just, a little tiny book with a little yes. tiny tweetable and encapsulated modern proverbs. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, the, the Life Bible by Kellen Kelly. Uh, Kelly yeah, Kelly, yeah, yeah. That's the best way to, to describe it. And as you're thinking about, if you think about this book and applying it to what you just brought up, extreme pessimism. I mean, I live in San Francisco, so, you know, AI is all the news, right? Like this is kind of the, almost like it's like AI has swooped in and saved Silicon Valley from its its, its downturn, which you would think that the past year, that is kind of where we've been in. And now AI is this new thing that everybody's excited about. But on the other side of that coin is a lot of pessimistic views, just particularly here in this city, just about politics and homelessness and all these other ills of the world that we have. How would you approach with your kind of framework of optimism for people now building companies today, right? Where now you have this unbelievable technology that seems to be taking over. In some ways, it's it's actually making people's jobs easier. It's taking away a lot of mundane tasks that they now maybe can just outsource to agents or AI. And then on the other side of it is you're a knowledge worker and you feel like your job is now going to be automated away. How how do you take that optimistic framework and, and apply it to kind of the real-time knowledge worker who's either building a company or working at a company? And and how do you how do you how, how what advice would you give them? So 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 my my, my to you know to kind of bring it down to a personal level, I think people should Attempt to be as optimistic as they can, as they're, and and maybe just like a you know, one notch above what they might normally be in terms of trying to make it a habit. I understand completely that some people are temperamentally not optimistic, and it's difficult for them to embrace that. And that's fine. Everybody starts at a different level. It's like learning any kind of skill. And the the reasons why we want to be optimistic is is that. The future is shaped by optimism. In retrospect, I mean, all the, you know, all the things that exist today were built by somebody who believed that they could be done when most other people didn't, and that belief that they were possible came from imagining what it was and trying to make it happen, and again believing that it was possible. And that belief was an optimistic belief. That's what optimism is. It's it's believing that. This improbable thing of of of, a, of something that could work is possible and is worth trying to make it happen, and that it that the advantages that this has outweigh whatever costs, and there will always be costs. There will always be problems that it generates. That given all those costs and problems, they're still worth doing, and that's optimism. So, in order to do something great and good, 
it doesn't happen inadvertently or by accident. We just can't stumble into something like that. You can't stumble into making the iPhone or you can't stumble into accidentally making a Tesla. You have to have a vision of what it is and believe that it's possible and good. And that's much, then you're much more likely to make it real. And so in order to be, in order to make some breakthrough, in order to make something really great that can affect humanity, to have that impact, you have to be optimistic to some extent. And so you can learn to do that. And, and the crucial thing you want to remind yourself is that optimism, an optimist doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to, you have to believe that our problems are smaller than we think because they, they are real and, and, and not small. You, you have to shift your focus to, to understand that our capacity to solve problems is, is increasing faster than the problems. So, 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 so our capacity to solve problems is bigger than we thought. And so that's, that's the difference. It's, it's like there, you can teach optimism to kids. It's called learned optimism. And, and I highly recommend you have children, you help them become optimistic. And the, the central difference that psych, child psychologists have, have that study this have seen is that optimists, when you're optimistic, you tend to believe that setbacks are only temporary. They're not your identity. They're not fated. They are just obstacles and setbacks are temporary on the road to greater success. So if you can understand that whatever has been, whatever's not working, whatever the problems are, that those are temporary, they can be overcome. And that helps you to be optimistic uh, about things because there will be problems and the problems we have are very large. And then, and the solution, whatever you're inventing will produce new problems in the future. Yet all those don't outweigh the good that's going to come from it. There's, there, there's no, there's no good that doesn't have the price to it. And we're often distracted by the price because it's the mathematics is very simple, which is if you can, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if we can create 1% more than we destroy every year, then that 1% compounded is civilization. That is progress. That's all we all, we only need 1% better. If you can be 1% better every year, you're on your way. You've got a golden. If you can just improve yourself 1%, 1% is almost invisible. You can't see 1%. It's not, it's not, it doesn't look like anything. You can only see it by looking around, turning around and retrospectively seeing, oh my gosh. So, 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 so the, so, so it's a very, it's a very doable goal to be optimistic. You just have to believe that you can be 1% better than last year. That's not that much. That's that's doable. That can help you be optimistic. That's a great that's a great segue. I think the one percent rule is something that we can all apply to our own lives and just in general as a civilization. Sure. It begs me to ask the next question in line with that. You know, one of the things I think from my world you're most notable for is a thousand true fans. And you describe this as something that it's a a, and a high level concept of a thousand true fans is if you're a creator or if you do any kind of you know creative work, a thousand true fans is the benchmark of being able to sustainably live your life, right? Getting that person, getting each thousand of those people to pay you some amount of money for your work. Combining that with this high idea of improving one percent, you've said you know you've said in the past 
it's adding those thousand true fans on a one-by-one cadence. And it's become a very, very popular framework amongst creators, entrepreneurs, and people doing sustainable businesses. How do you see this this concept in the modern day lens, right? Where we're now proliferated with all these new gadgets and kind of magic almost with, you know, you can create blog articles and content using, you know, different technologies that have been built in the past, you know, five to six years. How would you change anything about the thousand true fans uh, perspective today? And if so, what would those things be? And then, you know, just elaborate on the progress of, of, of that compounding that you've seen with that, that article, yeah. that blog that you wrote. You know, briefly to those who, who, who may not know what the thousand true fans premises is basically is that if with technology, we have the ability for a creator to have direct contact with their audience. So, so like, unlike say like a book publisher in New York, a traditional book publisher would sell books through a bookstore to people and, and the publisher and the author would have no contact, no ownership, no stake in who the, the, the audience was. They would, they, they wouldn't, neither the author nor the publisher had, had the audience. And, but if with new technologies, and particularly social media and enabled an individual to have a, 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 a far reach number of, of people that they have direct contact with. And if you have that, then that lowers the amount of the size of the audience that you need to support. So if you had direct contact and you could get, you could sell your true fans, the truest fans who would buy anything you produce. And you, if you could sell them a hundred dollars a year, you can make a hundred thousand dollars with a thousand true fans. If you, couldn't get a, if you couldn't get a hundred dollars from me, get only 50, then you need twice as many. That's still a very different idea than that. You needed a million fans to have success. So that's the premise. And your question is like, what's, has anything changed or the new technologies changed? I recently reread the piece just for myself to wonder about that. And I think the main thing or the, the main thing happening right now is, is the, the thing about a thousand true fans, if, if you only need a thousand of them is that, if you are working on some idea that is very niche and only appeals to one in a million people, it's so, you know, it's about left-handed fishing gear, you know, whatever, or, you know, saltwater aquarium jellyfish raising equipment. If you had a very esoteric thing that only one in a million people would appreciate, because there are several billion people on the planet, that means that there are a at least a thousand people around the world for any in the weirdest esoteric idea that you have. The challenge is connecting with them, matching up, having them find you, having you find them. And that's where I think the technological frontier will be, will be trying to enable that matching. And it may be that AI might be useful in matching that up. Saying, you know, hey, I know, I know you're kind of interested in, you know, in left-handed pitcher mitts made out of leather. Here's a guy. I found a guy who's who's making these because the, uh, because I'm reading everything in the whole world. So 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 it's possible that that crucial function of matchmaking, of matching your niche with their niche, could be done enabled by technology, which would really facilitate that thousand true fan thing. So, but I'm not sure about generating. Yes. And of course the AI can help generate, help creators generate. I call them the universal personal intern. 
That's what you're getting with with these things. Is they're your personal intern that can work day and night, but they're interns, so you have to check their work. You can't just release it on your own. It, it's not good enough. It's embarrassing almost. But but they are really really good as assistants as helps trying to get you to do things. So if you're doing if you're doing something, if you're selling something that can be replaced by an AI, it's not very high quality. That's all I can say. Right? It's, it's, you're not going to last long anyway. If 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 what you're doing can be completely created by AI, it's just too predictable. Yeah. So it doesn't, um, it doesn't meet your. It, it wouldn't meet your qualifications of being the best. Right. The best and the only person to do that. Right. So exactly. As much as AI has impacted the economy and it will impact it, your view of just finding getting out there to where you're the select person right. that is doing this work that can't be done. And I think that still right. matches and that still maps to the truth because AI can do a lot of those. I, I like the intern. Right. Right. So of, it's right. So the AI, this current crop of AIs are trained on the totality of human content creation, the, the best and the worst and everything in between billions of billions of documents. And what, what it is, it's the wisdom of the crowd. It's the average. It's giving you, what the average person should expect to see. And that's how they operate. They're, they're actually generating things like an autocomplete. It's like, this is what you said, and this is most likely the most common, likely human-like next word, next bit. And so it's by definition, or not, the way it's created, it's going to make average stuff. And to get, it, to get it beyond average, you have to really push it. You have to kind of work with it. You've got to nudge it and train it and cajole it and counsel it and praise it and all kinds of things. You have to have a conversation with it in order to get it beyond that average. And so that's work for you. That's that's your partnership. So so just generating the content, it can do and it can be helpful, but it'll be kind of like your average, you know, intern and, and you have them working. And so it will facilitate the creation of doing stuff that is tedious things that, that a human could do, but just would never spend the time doing. And that's a huge thing, like the research needed or synthesis. These AI yeah. are really good at synthesizing two things that don't match. Like recently, people were saying, we're taking like spreadsheets and saying, merge these spreadsheets together. And it was doing these very, very sophisticated ideas of like things that weren't completely related and figuring out how to correlate them. Again, a human could do it, but it'd be like a week's worth and, and, and then maybe you're yeah. throwing it away. It's not useful. And no human is going to spend that much time doing it. But you have these AIs that can just do it one after another. And so they're going to be useful in that, in that sense. But they aren't going to replace the human genius of, again, trying to do something that nobody else can do that's valuable and wanted. And, and that's still the role that the human founder, the human owner, this human entrepreneur will, will have to do. Yeah. And I think it's what to contextualize it. And, and, you know, I think the latest trend, I mean, I'm a hip hop fan. So, you know, Drake has been one of my favorite artists over the past 15 years and they've created these auto generated Drake songs. And I think it really hits home right. with what you're saying. Those songs can only be as good as the average Drake song. They can't really right. be <laughs> his best hit because, yeah. you know, they're just taking all the lyrics from his, his library discography and just putting it all together. Sure. So like 
that's that's the point. Drake is not to be worried, shouldn't be worried because these songs will just continue. Yeah, we could generate thousands of them, hundreds of thousands. Right, of them, right, right. But none of them will be as good as his biggest hit that he created. Right. right? So, so, so what will happen? And I, you know, I, I know nothing about Drake. I'm, I'm no inside knowledge. Yeah. Is that people like Drake will, will use those same models to say, okay, make me a Drake-like song, and then I'll make it even better, and I will release it. They'll use it themselves. They'll say, okay, here's all my stuff. Write me a song now. Make me a song. And it'll be pretty good, but it'll be kind of like, you know, it'll be okay. But but Drake himself will have to make it really great. But they can work with the intern to, to help them along. And that's how we're finding people like myself are using it. It's like, for me, writing that first draft is just, it's just a bear. I just, I just hate it. Yep. It's just so hard. I can have the intern generate some first drafts that are okay. They're, mm, that's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a place to begin, and then I can go work from there. I'm not going to release their, the intern's work it's in, mm-hmm. you know, as, it, as mine just because it's not that good, but it's kind of interesting as a start. And so it's my, they can become, I think as they become smarter, they'll become partners more than just interns. But they will remain partners. And that's something I've been preaching for a long time is this, the relationship they're going to have with AIs is of a centaur, a team, team work. And that's true in medicine. That's true in design, which is that these things are not as good as a human alone. And, but the best is, is a combination of the human plus the AI. The human plus the AI is better than the human. It's better than the AI alone. And so, mm-hmm. so there's a kind of a weird thing where the, the human's better than the AI, but the human plus the AI is better than either of those. And so um, that's where we're going. That's where we're going with medicine and doctors. And um, that's where we're going with designers. And customer support is another one. A lot of customer support can be better replaced with a machine, but the best customer support is going to be a human plus the AI. Yeah. And that's... That's that'll be the premium service. The premium service is going to be a human help support that's supported by an AI. Yeah, I think. But if you're really poor and can't afford it, you'll just get an AI by themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the other side of it. Is is it, a lot of people can afford a bunch, you know, a lot of interns, but they can't actually afford really one great person. So they're, right. they'll probably right, right, just right. try to feel that. But but the, you know, it's like the doctoring. Yes, a human doctor is better than an AI doctor, and an AI, a human plus an AI doctor is the best of all, but an AI doctor is much better than no doctor. Yes. And so yes. there are just so many people in the world who don't have a doctor, and having an AI doctor is a huge step up. Yeah. And so the same thing with help desk. Um, yes, a human is better than an AI helper, the best is the human plus the AI, but an AI helper is better than no helper. Yep. And so that's the, that's going to be the formula. No, that's great. I really thank you for taking the time, Kevin, to, to carve out uh, a little bit of this AI stuff. I think you, you put it very succinctly and it's really practical way to use mm-hmm. the technology that we're being bombarded with and the way to think about it. So great to, to wrap up the today's conversation, you know, Kevin, we would love to know what, 
what's in the future for you. Obviously, the book Excellent Advice for Living is out on, I believe, May 2nd is the official date it's released. I'm sure you can pre-order it on all the places that books are sold. But what should our audience expect from you next? I and mean, you're still uh, cranking out these books and delivering great <laughs> content and resources for the technology sector and, and, and beyond. Uh, what else should we expect for you to accomplish in the years to come? Yeah, well, thank you again. I'm going to remind people about this excellent advice for yes. living, which is going to be released on May second, and it is as as you said, full of little bits that I wrote down so I can remember them. Some of them are practical, some are kind of more cosmic, and I think most people will find something that will help them change their habits and um, remind them uh, on their path to trying to find themselves. What for me next is I'm working on a project of trying to imagine some scenarios for a hundred year future that I want to live in and maybe other people too. So it's a future that's full of ubiquitous AI and effective genetic engineering and it's got ubiquitous surveillance. It's like the metaverse, all kinds of future stuff, but it's a world that we want to live in. It's not the typical dystopia future that is portrayed by Hollywood. It's a world full of all this stuff that, that I would like to live in. And that's actually a very difficult thing to imagine because we find as, as humans very easy to imagine ways in which this doesn't work. It's very easy to see the ways in which AI can fail or hurt, hurt us or harm us or be a disaster or a problem because that's entropy. The probable is prob failure is the most probable solution for anything. Resolution end. Most startups will fail. Most experiments will fail. Most art fails. That's the natural entropic destiny for anything we produce is usually failure because it's the easiest. Having things work is unusual and improbable. The only way something works is like it's not probable, statistically probable. We are on all improbable too. And the more unique we are, the more improbable we are. That's almost a definition of unique, or that's a physical definition. So, 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 what that means is 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 that imagining a future that works, that's full of this complicated technology, is highly improbable and highly difficult to do, and, but necessary in order for us to get there. I'm not saying this is going to be the the future that we will arrive at. I'm not making a prediction. I'm just trying to say if we can imagine it it's much more likely that we can make it. And so my job is to try and help people imagine a future full of all the stuff that we want to live in. That's awesome, Kevin. And maybe leave us with the parting words of where uh, the book can be purchased or where you would prefer for it to be purchased. And then obviously your blog and your yeah. uh, Twitter. I'm assuming you're very active there on Twitter as well. Yeah, I have. Thank you for asking. I have a very Act, I have an active Twitter uh, uh, where I publish. I don't really respond to very much, and I'm not using it properly. But I do yep. post one AI. These days, I, I, for years, I've been posting one piece of art a day. It used to be art that I made myself on my iPad. Now it's mm -hmm. art that I co-create with an AI generator, and I'm very, very comfortable in assigning co-authorship, co-creator. So... Because there's a lot of work involved in working with AIs to produce an image that's worthy to share. And so I have an AI co-generated image every day, Twitter and Instagram. And I, I still blog trying to figure out what this AI stuff means to us, what it's 
cultural importance is. I'm less concerned about the actual technical details. And I'm much more interested, like Wired was, what it means to us in the context of it in our lives. And so that's called a technium. And all of that's on my website. That's just my initials, kk.org. So I, the book is, you know, Amazon is, where else do you buy books? I don't know if there's any of the choices. Yeah. They're really, yeah. I know, I'm joking. There are, there are, but I'm, I'm a total yeah. Amazon fanboy. Yeah. It's available wherever nice books are sold. Penguin will like me to say that. It's a Penguin Viking book and it'll be available and it's on pre-order now if you, well, this will come out after the book is out. So yeah. the book will be available on Amazon. Awesome. Great. Well, again, everyone, we've been, I've enjoyed this conversation. I mean, I could stay on with Kevin all day. Uh, he doesn't have all day, but he's been gracious enough to come on the Stretch Four podcast. And again, he could be found at kk.org. His Twitter is Kevin2Kelly. Two Kelly, the, the number two. two. Yeah. The number two. And Excellent Advice for Living is available on Amazon today, actually, when this uh, podcast yep. and you're hearing it and, and go order a copy. Kevin, again, thank you for coming on the show today. It's been a great pleasure to have you and we hope you could join us in the future absolutely it's been delight thank you for having me and onward and prosper thank you sure